Hello, bonjour, and welcome to the Don't Waste Water podcast. I am your host, Antoine Walter, and I have the great pleasure to welcome Ravid Levy as my guest today. Ravid is the founder of RLV Consulting Services and a former VP Technology for Fluence and Chief Technical Officer for RWL Water. In today's episode, Ravid will unveil the rationale behind successful innovation in water and wastewater treatment, thus guiding us along the path from ID to commercial achievement. Stay tuned to get his top three trending treatment technologies, his advices to avoid the pitfalls along the innovation way, and his take on skeptics and our industry in general. You're listening to Don't Waste Water, the podcast that helps water professionals to improve their wastewater treatment, optimize their operation costs, and keep up with the latest market trends. This podcast is brought to you by GF Piping Systems. As a leading supplier of piping systems made of plastics and metal, GF Piping Systems is the global expert for the safe and reliable transportation of water, chemicals, and gas. For more information, visit gfps.com. Hi, Revit. Welcome to the show. Make a stream. Tell us how sunny it is right now in the water startup nation, uh, which is also called Israel, I think. Yeah, it is sunny, actually, which is uh, not uh, very unusual over here. Um, it rains sometimes in winter, but it's mostly sunny and uh, uh, beyond the beautiful weather for uh, tourists, uh, when tourism is on, of course, um, it actually may be, or possibly the reason why it is also a water startup country, because um, for decades, you just had to uh, to survive and innovate and grow in, in a pretty arid and uh, limited uh, area. So, um, you know, the, they say the, the need is the mother of all inventions. So the water scarcity is somehow driving the, the inventivity. It's probably the, the, the fundamental reason uh, why uh, water was always uh, a big deal uh, here, uh, both in agriculture and municipal, um, in every aspect of the water cycle. It's also a very small country, so uh, the the uh, for uh, historically um, it was very uh, centralized uh, management of water resources, uh, both by law. There is a unique law for uh, uh, water being a public asset in Israel. All types of water, actually, including seawater uh, and groundwater, so uh, everything is. Uh, managed as a holistic uh, approach, uh, which also allows uh, management of all different uh, types of water and, and taking decisions uh, uh, on a broader scale. So uh, innovation also runs uh, underneath, possibly because uh, some say we're just uh, innovative people over here, uh, not only in water, in other things. So with the startup nation and the water startup nation uh, goes well together. Well, actually, in terms of, of country and, and experience, uh, you've not limited your path to, to, to Israel. So maybe you can uh, guide, uh, guide us through your steps and just tell us uh, the main milestones. Yeah, uh, well, I, I had the chance to, uh, to experience some other uh, cultures as well. Uh, in fact, I, I started my, uh, my career uh, as in environmental uh, biology in university, uh, not at all uh, in the water business uh, per se, but uh, after I finished my uh, master's, I, I went to work for uh, some private uh, companies that happened to, uh, to work with water and I got uh, addicted, if you like. I got hooked on, on, this, uh, on this subject and, and uh, then just, uh, well, flew for, forward with, with, went forward with the flow. Um, and then, uh, after a few years, I had a chance to, uh, to be sent to Australia, to relocate to Australia, uh, by a company I worked with at the time. And I managed the operation there for a few years. That was an amazing experience, uh, both personally, but also, uh, professionally. Australia, uh, was back then in the middle of its, uh, millennium drought. And, uh, and, uh, there was a huge activity around desalination, uh, industrial water, effluent reuse. Uh, 
it was booming over there at the time and it was a amazing experience to be part of of that um market and uh, i i learned a lot um and then when i went back uh, to israel i continued to work uh, internationally from here uh as part of the different uh, uh companies i i were i was with and uh that gave me an opportunity to be exposed to other uh markets especially in uh, latin america europe southeast asia it was amazing to see it was very interesting to to be exposed to uh, to the different approaches to different problems and also to the shared uh uh experiences and challenges that uh, uh different economies and different cultures uh, face regarding water wastewater and um and everything around it. uh today i'm uh, i'm doing uh private uh, consulting uh to different companies and organizations trying to share this experience and uh, work together with them on on bridging the gaps between technology and the, those different markets and the different needs so you you founded your own company i i yeah i i i'm an independent consultant i found my own uh little company that giving uh, uh boutique consulting services if you like uh to different organizations and companies both here in israel and in other country uh mainly focusing on water wastewater and environment, environmental challenges what's your 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 secret sauce i like to call it that way i know it's not not mcdonald's but uh, what's your secret sauce when it comes to to that is it this international experience you you've you've collected is it the variety of things you've seen through through your path this always helps uh of course uh because uh, if you don't have the perspective and the knowledge of of the the different markets and uh and environments it's very hard to uh uh to be effective over there but uh if if i have to choose one secret uh or not secret but one unique um component or or uh, of of what i i offer what i have to offer is uh i think basically the the combination between uh technical knowledge and the commercial uh approach so uh what i found over the years is that in uh, many organizations in our industry uh there are always uh two sides of the of the business or the organization one is very technical and uh, engineering uh people maybe r&d or engineering or even project uh, execution and maintenance others are those who uh should deal with the money at the end the 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 commercial people the marketing the sales the uh finance sometimes and in many cases there's a gap there's a lack of communication um i i actually sometimes find it as two different languages uh, or approaches to life in general to water particularly uh some of them talk in uh, technical terms other others in basically financial or legal terms i include ip management in in the second part uh and each side in many cases don't really understand the other uh sometimes even afraid of the vocabulary or or what makes the other side uh tick and uh i found that uh, that uh, just handful of people just few people in the industry not too many uh can bridge that gap can speak both languages and can uh narrow those gaps and make those organizations sometimes work more efficiently uh and this is especially important when um new technology or an innovative uh design which is by nature in this industry usually uh starts from the technical or the engineering or the r&d side needs to go to market and eventually be sold be profitable uh be competitive and um switching from a brilliant uh technical solution to a good commercial solution is is a long path and and uh and in order to do that efficiently not to end up with you know white elephants that are perfectly designed but cannot be sold or the other way around that are extremely uh competitive but uh lack the uh the actual 
possibility to, to function uh, technically. Doing both is, is where good technology uh, eventually ends up. And in order to do both, you need to speak both languages. If I really need to define that secret, uh, that, the unique uh, uh, aspect is, is bridging those gaps and speaking both languages. I had the opportunity to do all of that in my different roles in the past, uh, in different markets and uh, environments. So mixing all this together, I think, sometimes can bring value to organizations that uh, suffer from those lack of communication. And today with your, your role as a consultant in that aspect of being the bridge, um, does it mean that you, you are the one bringing those guys together, translating from one, one end to the other what one or the other is meaning? Or how can I, can I see your role today? It, it depends on the type of organization I work with. So uh, when I work with uh, an academic or, or research institute, for example, I sometimes take the role of business development. In other words, uh, understanding or taking those innovation from the lab scale or from the uh, even, not theoretical, but usually from the concept and, and lab scale and research and, and, and starting to, uh, to understand where, uh, where is their um, commercial potential towards the market? How do they fill gaps in the market? And maybe what should be the development approaches or how to develop, develop them further in order to, to fit into needs in the market. Uh, and then later, how uh, they uh, compare or how can they compete with the, the, the common practices that are already there. You need to understand what is already being done out there in that specific uh, market or, or niche. And to understand the, the gaps or the disadvantages and also the advantages of, of the existing solutions and, and try to build the, uh, the new innovation to exceed that, to, to win in that game later when they become commercial. Along the way, the need to understand the, uh, the need to protect the IP because uh, in that uh, example of, of academic uh, research, naturally and everywhere, academics they want to publish. That's how they are being uh, judged. That, that's what they are there to do. Uh, sometimes publishing too early before protection may, may lose the, the, the protection over the IP later, and, and that creates a difficulty when you uh, try to go to market or to commercialize that in any way. Uh, so this is sometimes what I do when I work with the, uh, the innovators or the, the Uh, the researchers. When I work with uh, more commercial or implementation companies, yeah, this is really actually standing there in the middle and bridging those gaps. Sometimes just uh, uh, sitting in joint uh, design review meetings of, of a certain uh, uh, design or a certain project even or, or a development with people from both sides of the organization and, and Translating, sometimes simply translating. They are all speaking the same language in terms of English or, 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 or Hebrew, but they are completely talking about different things uh, when they talk engineering and commercial and, and, and IP and other aspects of what a good product is or a good solution is. There is a value of having someone in the room physically or in the project uh, that can take the, understand the messages from, from all sides and integrate, integrate that into decisions, into actions that compromise or just uh, take calculated decisions which side to prefer in a certain action. The, the, the approach in general, and uh, this is a little bit sometimes hard to convince, is that if any one of those sides of the equation wins or prevails, the organization loses. Because uh, if, a, if a solution is engineered too well, it will just usually be too expensive or not competitive, and then it will not be sold. However, if it's, not, if it's, if it's too competitive, if you like, if, if the commercial people prevails, it can sell like, uh, you know, hot bagels, but then it will not work. It's a matter of balance, yeah. It's a balance, and that balance is different in every organization and every product and every solution. 
And this is exactly what I'm trying to, um, to offer, the analysis of the right balance and assisting the organization to, to walk that fine line towards commercial success at the end. I guess that, that, that leads us to, to the heart of our topic today, which is how ideas can become real. How do you bring a good technical idea to a good commercial success? And you've given us already some, some good insight and some great lines uh, on how that could work and how that should be. But maybe let's go back to, to the really roots of it. How do you define the birth of an idea in water and wastewater treatment? What is leading to a new idea? A need, a real need out there. I mean, of course, it, it's not unique to our industry. But uh, when something is missing, something is not functioning uh, well or not efficient, or just maybe sometimes there's a new need uh, in the market, then this is a great motivation or a great starting point for, for innovation. Examples, desalination used to be very expensive. I, I remember that at the time in Australia, someone turned this uh, saying about this at the time, saying that uh, desalination is liquid energy. It used to be liquid energy, but in the last uh, uh, decade or so, Uh, innovation and changes in design, technology, many things managed to drop the energy use through that and through other innovations, also the, mainly the overall water cost, to something which is, was regarded uh, impossible or non-realistic just a few years ago. And, uh, you know, we used to talk about uh, one or two dollars a cubic meter in, in, in large-scale scale desalination. And these days, everybody takes for almost for granted that uh, tenders of, you know, for large POT projects are done at uh, less than half a dollar. 50 cents for cubic meter, all, all included. Energy, financing, maintenance, operation, membranes, you name it, everything is included uh, in, in less than 50 cents. And still companies and, 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 and even governments can justify that economically. So it's profitable. How did we come there? Is it, is it something which was incremental, things which were every day a bit better, or did someone come with a game changer which was disruptive? It was gradual. So uh, not incremental because in that uh, project, it is based on the, some big projects made uh, a significant improvements. And, but it, it, it took time. It took over about maybe 10 years for this to, to really uh, happen. Uh, there were some significant leaps in innovation in certain projects. I mean, uh, in, the, in the desalination industry, everybody talks about Ashkelon, uh, for example, where uh, ID introduced uh, some interesting or very innovative uh, design concepts uh, that made the, the plant much more Uh, efficient, which is now adopted in many uh, other plants, and then later uh, in uh, in Sorek, and and now the the new Sorek plant. And I'm just talking about the Israeli uh, uh, desalination environment. Uh, similar things happened in in the in Saudi and in other places where large desalination plants are, uh, have been built in Singapore and in Australia. And over this time, uh, from one project to the other. And from competitiveness and from the need to actually reduce the cost in order to, to win the tenders and to, uh, and, and to reduce the, uh, the ongoing cost, the energy, etc., there was the advancement. So I think this is a, a good example for a gradual change, not a, you know, a light bulb that all of a sudden uh, you know, uh, was invented and, and changed uh, the entire world. In fact, I don't. I think it will be pretty hard to to find uh, these kind of uh, uh, game changers or, or uh, huge disruptors in this kind of industry. Uh, you know, like a singular point where uh, a bright idea changed the industry. So you do believe that the the potential for for game changers is is some somehow gone. Because uh, I would say, if you look at the wastewater treatment, when the first guy came and said, hey, we're going to do activated sludge, and that's going to be a way to treat water, I'm pretty sure people looked at him like he was crazy. So that was a game changer. So, but I guess at some point, if an industry is reaching maturity, the potential for game changers is going to be lower. Uh, 
I'm not sure. I, uh, there are, there's always potential for game changes. There are game-changing ideas in this industry, but the adoption and the upscaling of them in this industry takes so much time and ongoing improvements that by the time this bright idea becomes, you know, real commercial reality or you know, implemented in, in, in the real scale and globally, uh, the connection to the original uh, idea is, is somewhat uh, faded uh, already. And there are many, many improvements along the way over that initial invention, right? Uh, maybe, maybe this is at the end the case everywhere. Of course, the first car that was uh, invented was a huge change, but it's very, very different from the cars that we drive today. So, but this is a more philosophical discussion, you know, what is a game changer and does it matter? The, the end game, the end product, uh, the result is what really uh, matters at the end. And, and if an industry manages to, to double or triple its efficiency in a decade, like the, desalin- the seawater desalination industry uh, in the example uh, that I just gave, and, and that's, that's a great achievement. And, and with, uh, with wastewater treatment, like uh, the example you, you gave, the original uh, activated sludge is very different from the advanced MDR and, uh, and MABRs and, and other uh, SBRs and whatever uh, technologies that are now being implemented to different applications, although the principle is the same and the bacteria is, is many times the same. You are mentioning some of this newest trends which are coming out. Um, I, I love top threes. So I'm going to ask you a tricky question. Uh, what would be, in your opinion, the, the top three inventions that, that you've seen pass through our industry over the, the last years? Your three favorite ones? I wouldn't say inventions. I, I would say uh, trends or, or technologies mm-hmm. because the, the, the point of invention may be long time ago. But the, the, the shift from a great uh, topic for, for academic research or, or conferences to the, to the point where it actually makes a different difference in the industry, that's, that's where I put my, my subjective finger on where it starts being interesting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so for me, I think we are just at the beginning, but uh, I think nobody can really doubt the role that digital computerized data analysis technologies will make in this industry. We're not even seeing the tip of the iceberg in this case. Uh, In fact, it's a good evidence how slow our industry is. I mean, out there, we're using cell phones and and, uh, and big data and, and, uh, you know, uh, cloud computing uh, every day. We're actually doing it right now uh, with, uh, with, with Zoom and, and with Facebook and with LinkedIn uh, without even thinking about it. Uh, but when it comes to our uh, water resources, this is still regarded as science fiction, right? People still uh, say sentences like, who needs uh, more sensors if nobody will, uh, will look at the data? The answer is why somebody needs to look at the data. Does does any person look at the data we produce online all the time? No. Uh, there are technologies that can digest huge amount of data that humans can never uh, assimilate by themselves. And then the next question of the skeptics is, okay, well, so we'll, then we will not need to have people? Will it replace people? The answer is obviously no. It will just need different people with different skills to, to, to get the results of the huge uh, database analysis and act properly. I still fear this, uh, I still feel this uh, fear of, 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 uh, of, of this kind of, uh, of, I don't know, shifts in, uh, in attitude, uh, but um, it's already out there. Uh, the water industry, which was always only based on hardware engineering, Control is, is usually in our industry meaning, uh, you know, a PLC, I don't know, in, included in, in, in some mechanical uh, uh, system and gets closer to what we usually call a high-tech industry. And if we can uh, increase 
our ability to collect valuable data and analyze it. Collecting without analyzing is worthless. The, the entire uh, sensors industry will have to, to shift dramatically from expensive and sophisticated sensors to something that can be uh, installed in, in as many points as, as possible around anywhere. And then the data analysis, the cloud computing systems will have to adapt also and take all that available data. Just imagine, imagine what would happen if any home in Flint, Michigan, had uh, an inexpensive sensor for uh, water quality, just like they uh, have a water meter to, to, to uh, measure how much water there was a, a reliable sensor that says what is the quality in real time. And every uh, point in time, something out there would, uh, would alarm if the water quality changes at the, the entry of each and every home in the U.S. or anywhere. It sounds like science fiction. In the case of Flint, Michigan, again, uh, it, it would have helped a lot. <laughs> of course, or anywhere else. Uh, but at the moment, we, we take for granted that we measure the quantity of water at the uh, entry of every home. But the quality of water is still too complex to measure and too expensive to measure, so we don't. We just measure it at the treatment plant at the best. And then we assume that, by the, but that if, it, uh, if it's uh, good at the treatment plant, it will also be good at every point uh, around the system. But if we had good uh, measurement devices, inexpensive measurement devices, everywhere and we could also analyze and 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 uh, monitor all that enormous data that will flow from everywhere we will know in real time what people drink and and what uh, wastewater is being produced if that would be the case uh, and then we can act immediately and save a lot now at the moment it's impossible because uh, a water treat a water quality sensor costs so much and so complex to install and then and then there's no one to actually analyze the data well i, I can fully relate to to, to what you, you're just saying uh, you know in in france some couple of years ago there, there was a new regulation that said you had to make some measurements at the outlet of every wastewater treatment plant so they created a huge data set and then they found out that nobody was doing anything with this data and they were unable unable to process it so they just withdraw the, the law and now the law is not existing anymore just because nobody had a clue what to do with the data right. so there's an untapped potential so I, I fully subscribe to your top one right. which would be this digital so, so, so that would be top one if we now go down to more process uh, related uh, uh, innovations there are two trends now uh, in the market that uh, is already going strong and I think will will keep going strong one is is on the um, low-level residual contaminants, both in water and in wastewater, which is, in fact, gradually uh, the, the, the boundaries between the two becomes very vague in places, of course, where uh, effluence is being reused eventually for, for potable reuse, either direct or indirect, I mean, California, Singapore, uh, other places. Uh, and then the contaminants in the water eventually will, will need to be treated similarly as if it was going to, to drinking. Together with uh, stricter or, or better analytical methods that can go down to the parts per billion resolution and stricter uh, regulation that goes with that, because obviously, like you said before, it's impossible to regulate something that you can't measure. Uh, so the, measure, the measuring capability also triggers higher regulatory approaches into, towards contaminants that before were just below uh, measurement uh, uh, capability or something like that. Uh, so now uh, contaminants like PFAS uh, in, in drinking water becomes a huge issue, especially in the U.S., but soon everywhere. Of course, in, in the wastewater, some... Um, uh, hormone, dis uh, hormone disruptors, uh, residual, uh, very low concentrations of, of, uh, of drugs and, and pharmaceuticals, uh, pesticides, etc. And all that, once the regulation is there, 
requires technologies to, to meet the regulation. And the current technologies in most places are limited. We still use activated carbon a lot as, as a solution. Uh, we use our own membranes just to, to reject that. Of course, it's, it's not being eliminated. It's just being concentrated in brines. And then those contaminants go somewhere, to the ocean, to the river, underground, wherever. But what comes around goes around, of course. Uh, and so these are not really solutions. They, I mean, they are solutions, but we need better solutions, uh, more sustainable, more economical and larger scale. Because all these places or most of these places that are already dealing with that, like Orange County in California or, or New Water in Singapore, they are just pilots uh, if you take the global wastewater industry. Once that trend of reusing or the need to reuse uh, wastewater to potable quality will go global. We will need solutions that can deal with the huge quantities of water economically and efficiently. And I think that technologies like AOP, advanced oxidation, and it's a very wide term. Mm -hmm. it, it takes inside many sub-technologies, different methods, but at the end, breaking down, mineralizing completely the, uh, the organic uh, contaminants, even in very low concentrations, uh, rather than absorbing them, like in carbon or rejecting them, like in membranes, uh, or sometimes in combination with those. I think will will be booming. This will go uh, very strongly in both potable water and reuse. Which kind of AOP would you would you focus on? The ozone-based, UV-based, peroxide-based? They all have their advantages. There will not be a one size that fits all uh, contaminants and all um, applications. Uh, so uh, I, I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't risk by by choosing at the moment. I'm personally involved uh, at the moment in developing or commercializing a UV-based catalytic approach. But I know that there are some very good successes with uh, with ozone, uh, with ultrasound. Uh, and, and there are some, some even more um, uh, innovative or, or, or other possibilities out there, both in research and in uh, early commercialization. But in general, in a way, it's like activated sludge. There's no one way of using the, the, the bugs. There are different variations, and each variation uh, is sometimes uh, better for a certain situation, depending on capacity, on the type uh, of, of contaminants, on the on the footprint, on the economic uh, situation, etc. Everywhere we use filters and we use chlorine. And I think that in a decade or so, AOP technologies will will be the new chlorine because uh, chlorine was there or disinfection was there when the focus was only on microbiological contaminants. But now that the, that there is a new focus or a new need to meet strict chemical pollution or contaminations in very, very low concentrations, we will just need to, to create the new chlorination or the new disinfection industry. And uh, I think AOP uh, will, might be the new disinfection industry. Actually, you, you're offering me a, a very smooth transition mm -hmm. to my next question, which would be, we, you said it starts with a need. So let's imagine there's a need out there and let's imagine we have an idea to solve that need. What would be the steps that I would, I would have to follow between my need and the moment where it's going to be uh, so much common that everybody's using it? First of all, first of all take, a big, take a deep breath because it will take time in this industry. <laughs> Seriously, one thing that uh, uh, inventors or, or innovators in, in this industry need is patience uh, because the adoption rate of technologies uh, in the water industry is, is relatively uh, slow. I mean, relatively, if you compare to digital or, or high-tech industries out there, consumer uh, electronics or whatever, it's extremely slow. Uh, it may be Uh, similar to what happens in other infrastructure industries. But uh, in general, it's not like you, uh, you know, you have a prototype, you go out there, you, you create a startup and you boom in the market, right? Uh, the, 
like you know what uh, what happens to Waze or Zoom or or other things that you know got adopted or WhatsApp. There's no water WhatsApp out there. Uh, it will it takes time, and with time, it also takes patient uh, money and uh, the, the the funding the investing uh, side of the business uh, of uh, of uh, water innovation is uh, is in a way a unique one this is why there are some specialized uh, uh, investment funds for this they know that the uh, the time scale is a little bit different and also there's a lot of of government or public money involved in in this kind of r&d and, and commercialization uh, I get to work a lot with the, the Israeli uh, Innovation Authority, uh, Horizon 2020 in Europe, other uh, organizations and, and agencies around the world, uh, PUB in Singapore, and others. They put public money into water innovations. So that would be the, the first uh, thing to, to understand. But, uh, and then... There must be a need and there must be a gap in the, in, in the current uh, solutions to that need. You know, maybe the best example is what happens with these uh, uh, PFAS, water contaminations now in the U.S. I mean, PFAS was there forever. If you, if you look for it, the literature, people were talking about it, investigating it. Uh, it it's not a new contaminant, but it's just a, a new need because the regulation uh, and the public awareness and change and the together with uh, analytical uh, capabilities and within no time, it became from, from a very localized or a niche problem to a, to a nationwide or even a global uh, issue. So regulation is a driver. Regulation is a driver. People look at regulation as a headache, but in our industry, regulation is the, the, the strongest driver to any need, which, as we said before, is the prerequisite to any innovation, any practical innovation, right? I'm not talking about theoretical uh, inventions, talking about innovation that can really, uh, you know, go out there and make a difference Mm -hmm. uh, commercially and and in any other aspect. In many cases, it starts from regulation that creates a need and and then the market, the the technology uh, bridges the gap. There's a huge need all of a sudden but technologies are, are, are not there. I mean, they are there with, with the old-fashioned carbon, membrane, a little bit of, of ion exchange uh, solutions, but these are more almost imp- improvising solutions that were not originally developed or uh, specialized in, in this kind of problem, which is new. And now there's a big rush towards getting new options to the market that are better than the current ones. Better might be more efficient, more cost-effective, more environmental sustainable. Whatever term you, uh, you define uh, efficiency, uh, all those are gaps uh, between what we have at the moment out there commercially and the need. Some things happen more quickly, like this uh, PFAS uh, crisis, or the um, example I gave before, after uh, you know the, the Flint uh, disaster, everybody started talking about uh, lead. Uh, lead was there forever, but when there was a, when there's a crisis, all of a sudden there's a new need, and some needs uh, develop more gradually, like the desalination cost that I mentioned before, like the uh, in general the reuse the potable or generally high-quality reuse challenges that drive the AOP uh, innovation and industry, or even the membrane industry in in some sense. Another example for an emerging uh, need or an emerging challenge and market that will, I think, I'm sure, that will drive a lot of innovation, already drive some innovation, is uh, the reuse of, of resources and nutrients mainly nutrients out of, out of wastewater, uh, both uh, municipal, agricultural, other wastewater. There's a lot of, of nutrients which we used to forever regard as uh, pollution. Phosphorus, ni- nitrogen, for, for the last 100 years, the industry developed ways 
of reducing those as much as possible so it will not be in the water, mineralizing that, uh, disposing that, uh, whatever. Uh, we gradually realized that elsewhere we manufacture, we invest a lot in manufacturing fertilizers and, and other materials that use those, those nutrients beneficially uh, while we continue to, uh, to, to dispose of them as pollution in, in, in wastewater. And now bridging this gap or, and, and closing that loop under what is now called uh, circular economy. Circular economy, yeah. Yeah, this buzzword basically means that, the, the, you know, what some people used to say forever, that one person's junk is another one's treasure. The, the wastewater junk of nutrients is the agriculture's uh, treasure as, uh, as fertilizers. However, we need efficient technologies to, uh, to bridge this, to bridge this gap. There's a gap, the technology comes in to fill the gap. Um, may, maybe it can be a recombination of existing stuff, but mm-hmm. probably there is a need for improvement. But as you said, it's a conservative business. So I guess uh, it's not from one day to the other that even with the best technology, you're going to reach approval and, um, and, and market fit. So, so what are the next steps? The next step. The next step is, is a proof of concept. So after you have a good idea and, and you show that it's feasible uh, technically, you need to prove it in, in, in real life. And this is done mainly uh, as a, in a prototype or a pilot or both. And this is a very uh, challenging uh, step because uh, many things work in the lab, in controlled environment, and sometimes in simulated uh, concentrations or, or whatever. But when you start using, you know, uh, real water, real wastewater, complexities arise. Of course, both process complexities, engineering complexities, and financial complexities. Uh, and, and all that needs continuously to be addressed as we go forward. As I said before, uh, if you just focus on one aspect and you neglect the others, you will find you, it will hit back at the end will be either not technically feasible uh, if you just focused on the money or it will not be economically feasible if you just focused on the engineering or or you have a brilliant technical solution which is also economical but you have no IP protection for it. And so uh, as you go forward, all these different aspects must continuously be monitored and, and acted upon differently in different stages. So they, the prototype or pilot is a very important step because this is where you really adjust the, the, the theory, but mainly the, 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 the lab or, or the uh, small scale, the controlled environment results into more real life. And then at the end, uh, of course, when all that happened and was successful, then there's the, um, the products phase. So product phase, depending on the technology and the application, may be mass production on one hand, if you're talking about uh, some technologies that are, you know, more uh, towards the, uh, the consumer or the, uh, the, I don't know, residential uh, market. The other side of that is upscaling. If this should go to industrial, municipal, large-scale applications, there's a lot of engineering and and again, commercial or financial aspects that needs to be addressed when you move from a prototype to a, to a full scale. And in the water industry, full scale can sometimes mean huge operations uh, with huge engineering challenges. And so those steps are, must, be, must be covered because uh, before you, you, you go through one, it's almost impossible to jump to the, to the, to the next both because you don't have enough information and, and understanding of, of your product or technology to go to the next step, and also because the market will not uh, uh, adopt something that did not prove itself uh, on, on the previous stage. I mean, if this is a, a consumer product, then you know you cannot just put it on online for sale before you, you can really show and know that it works and that and then there's the regulatory issues as well. You need all that to be approved sometimes. If, you know, it's a 
NSF or EPA or whatever uh, that needs to sign off on, on the solution. Uh, and if it's an engineered or a full-scale project uh, kind of, of solution, then you need the, the clients the, or the contractors, the EPC contractors or anyone to, to take the risk with that. And taking the risk immediately on, on a full-scale plan is sometimes too risky for many people and rightfully so. I mean, at the end, they need to both uh, supply good water that meets the regulations, so they have uh, regulatory liability, and they also need to, to make money, so it needs to be also uh, commercially uh, viable. Actually, that's a, a very interesting point. Um, just if I recall the, the various steps, you, 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 you said it starts with, with TEM, so you need to have patience and, of course, uh, a good funding. Then there needs to be a gap, which is then a driver because there's a need. So there might be an opportunity. Once you frame the opportunity, you do a proof of concept, uh, which can be a prototype, which can be a pilot. You have to take care of all the other aspects like IP, as you said. And then finally, you come to this step where there's this uh, upscaling or, or the productization. What's the profile of people which go through all these steps? Because from your experience, I would be interesting to know, is, is it more the guy in the garage, which has a genius idea, which might be the guru of process and which will be totally lost when it comes to productization? Or is it more the big groups that anyways know that the product might be that shape at the end and that might maybe miss the creativity mm. at the beginning of the process? I guess there are examples to both. There are great ideas in this industry that started from both universities and then grew up out of there. There are great ideas, I guess, that started in, in garages, if you like. Now, uh, just a handful of people that started something very uh, small scale and, and managed to, to, to go further with that. And there are amazing examples of major corporations that just innovated through a project or through a, a need, an internal need to, to win a tender Or to uh, or to solve a specific problem that then grew up uh, to uh, to be a technology or maybe a spin-off company or whatever. Uh, so I think there's no one um, way of, of doing this. But at the end, in this kind of industry, maybe in any, but this is the one I know best. Is it will require both the visionaries, so the the, the, the those crazy, if you like people that think of a new thing, but at the end, the hardcore engineers that can actually uh, turn that into a product, an engineered product. And at the end, we're dealing with water. Water is non-compressible. There are many people and we use a lot of water. So at the end, a great idea that cannot be upscaled or mass-produced, if that's the market, is, is a curiosity. It, it will be... It, It will be gone. And in the middle, there are the, the financial and the IP people that, you know, keep reminding the engineers and, and, and the innovators that at the end, it should not only reach the moon, it should, should get there within budget and on time. And so, uh, and protected if you really want to, uh, to make it a commercial product. At the end, in our industry, it's the inevitable to have the team Of, of multidisciplinary people that take this idea from uh, beginning to an end, to a successful end. And that's why I said in the beginning that bridging the gaps between them and translating from one to the other and, and kind of, you know, smoothing the edges uh, or, or dealing with the conflicts while understanding the, um, the approaches or the, the paradigms of, of each side of, of that equation is sometimes a crucial uh, part of, of, of succeeding. Yeah, so uh, I, I think that uh, combi combining work. those, it's yep. a, well, it's always a team, but uh, this is a team of people that come from very, very from different yeah. cultures and various and, and perspectives. And, and that's a challenge. Rabbit, I'm a bit sorry here because uh, I have to be the bad guy and the timekeeper and I could be speaking with you for hours. Uh, so I guess um, we should be planning a second version of that. So uh, I'll take the opportunity here in the podcast to, to invite you to, uh, to a sequel of this episode. Sure. I'll, I'll be happy to, uh, to share more. Uh, and um, yeah, it's, uh, 
I have a last question on that topic. Uh, you've mentioned one major pitfall, which is uh, if you are um, just skipping one step in the innovation process, it's not going to work for whatever reason. If you skip the IP, uh, the, the IP, for instance, well, you might be successful, but someone is going to steal your idea. Or if you miss uh, the proof of concept, then nobody's going to be taking the risk to implement it on, on, on full scale. Would you see another pitfall that we didn't address yet or something that innovators keep failing at? Depending on the market. Uh, this is, at the, I think, at the end, uh, the very, very uh, final step, this is... Uh, adjusting the product to the different markets and, and assuming that water is, is the same everywhere and you have a brilliant idea that works uh, over here, then I can, I, I can just go and, and, and copy and, uh, and replicate it. Uh, in other places, you, you might find some, uh, some disappointments along the way. Uh, water is very similar in, in principle in different places, But one, there are always local uh, variations. So, you know, there are not no two identical rivers or oceans out there, uh, and people are very different in, in different places still. Uh, so um, both the marketing, but also the actual engineering. Uh, maybe it goes a little bit to a different topic that uh, we may uh, speak about. Uh, Uh, in, in, a, in a future podcast that this uh, concept of if I have a great idea, then I can just uh, uh, replicate it and, and, and standardize it and do a one-size-fits-all thing. It's a very appealing concept because it's very economical to, uh, to repeat things and, and do things in, uh, in uh, molds. But in, in this uh, process type of, of industry, it will be very, very difficult to succeed this way. Um, so even if, if there is a great idea and a great concept and even uh, a great product, at the end, I think it will have to be maybe not tailored, but uh, there will have to be some few variations or some flexibilities uh, to adapt it to different situations. Well, thank you, because that's brilliant. That's an excellent teaser. Now I'm really looking forward to that sequel. Ravid, what I propose right now is to, to, to move to the last section of this, uh, this episode, which is the rapid-fire questions. So I try to keep the questions short, and uh, you can try to keep the, the answer short as well. It's time for the rapid-fire questions. Uh, <laughs> Sure. I, it's tricky on my end, so I guess it must be on yours as well. Um, my first uh, question would be, what's the most exciting project you've been working on and why? I think it, if I have to choose, uh, that would be a project I, I worked on lately and, and still uh, uh, working on, uh, which is uh, a very interesting artificial intelligence-based monitoring of wastewater treatment uh, processes. Uh, it's based on uh, machine vision and, and some other uh, trendy words, but at the end, this is kind of uh, supposed to allow to replace an, an on, ongoing or a 24-7 operator that otherwise would have to, to, choose, to, to watch and, and monitor the process by, by just a kind of a, a mechanical eyes and brains. And this is very challenging and, and very innovative, I think. What's your favorite part of your current job? I would have to say variety uh, of technologies and, and clients. I, I, uh, I, at any single point in time, I, I think I juggle three to, to, to five different projects. Uh, no two are ever the same uh, and in different, with clients from different countries. And this has just been fascinating. Aside from the ones we already discussed, what is the trend to watch out in the water industry? So I mentioned digital and, and AOP and nutrient recovery. And I have to add also uh, solar or in general, uh, renewable energy desalination. This is one thing that is still, despite the reduction in energy uh, use uh, in desalination, it is still a, a major power consumer and greenhouse gases emitter at the end, and uh, turning uh, or matching the, the boom in, in renewable energy to the boom in desalination will change the world in, in a way. 
what is the thing you care the most when you're designing a new product or a new process or a service? And also what is the one you care the less if there's one? So the most, I will just have to use two uh, of the biggest cliches in any industry. It has to be fit to purpose and cost effective. Uh, if it's not meeting both criteria here, it's not a good solution. Might be a great technology, but it's not a good solution. Uh, what I care the less, I would think that the skeptics, I mean, uh, in fact, I think that uh, if, if everyone agrees that a new innovation is spot on and, and perfect and will work, it is probably not innovative enough. Uh, so um, there will have to be some skeptics around that will say why it will not work, will have amazing uh, uh, reasons why it should not work. You always have to listen to them and, and prove they're wrong, unless they are right, because sometimes things do not work. So, uh, but I think the skeptics are, are there, but uh, you shouldn't, uh, you shouldn't over, uh, overestimate or, or, or take it more seriously than you have to. Otherwise, you'll be just stuck with, uh, uh, with the why nots. I really love that one. That's a cool one. To round it off, do, do you have some sources that you would recommend to, to keep up with the, the, the trends in water and wastewater? Yeah, I, I really appreciate what uh, GWI are doing. Uh, I think they are a great source of, uh, of quantitative and, and interesting uh, information about the industry. I, I like uh, the, uh, the AMTA uh, meetings if you're in membranes specifically. Uh, the, the annual AMTA conferences are very valuable, both as a meeting place, but a very, very focused uh, uh, small-scale conference about that. Uh, the, the other side of, of the range are uh, uh, WEFTEC, I mean, conferences and exhibitions. They are massive, but uh, they really cover the wastewater uh, industry well. And, and, and finally, I will just have to mention LinkedIn. Uh, I know many people look at that as, as a job uh, searching platform, but uh, I, I managed to, to meet or, you know, to get to know so many professionals that otherwise I, I would never have any access to and, and to learn a lot from, from what people uh, publish there. It's just a great communication and, and connection platform, uh, even if you don't look for a job. <laughs> Talking about those professionals, uh, you've been an amazing uh, guest to this podcast, but would you have someone that you would recommend that might be a good guest that we have to extend an invitation in the, in the minute? Yeah, actually, there's a couple that I, I would recommend uh, you would try to speak with. One, who I, I must say I kind of admire in a way, is uh, Boris Lieberman. Uh, he's the innovation a uh, person in IDE and in a way responsible a lot for reinventing uh, uh, desalination a few times around. Uh, and uh, he's, uh, he has a huge know-how and, uh, and a lot to learn from. Another one that uh, really looks at the different, some different angles of the industry is Mike Dixon uh, in Canada. Uh, knows a lot of, uh, about another trend, another hot topic that we haven't discussed, which is algae and, and cyanobacteria uh, contaminations in water and, and many other topics and uh, also really fun to work with. I have a new top two of people that I have to invite. Thanks a lot. So Rabbit, uh, thank you for uh, your time. Thank you for this very insightful discussion that, the, that, that we had. If people were to follow you online, where sh should I re redirect them? LinkedIn, probably my LinkedIn profile. Uh, my email is also there. Uh, I don't have a website uh, uh, at the moment, but I think the, the LinkedIn platform and, and emails uh, are a wonderful place to, to get in touch and, and start a conversation. Plus, you're very active and it's always very insightful when I see what you're commenting left and right. It's uh, every time I'm like amazed, like, whoa, that's a nice compliment to, to the original poster. That's really an interesting view. So I would definitely recommend to, to follow you on LinkedIn. Thank you. So, thanks a lot, Rabbit. So I guess we will see us uh, soon again because we have a sequel episode now to record. So <laughs> see you soon. <laughs> Bye -bye.
Thanks for listening to Don't Waste Water. This podcast was brought to you by GF Piping Systems. Loved this episode? Head over to Apple Podcasts to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. See you next time.